Jefferson, Tennessee at the Fried Hardeman Lectures and really enjoyed my time there. But of course, when you do something like that, it cuts your week in half and it cuts uh, my lesson preparation time down. And, and so on the way home, I was thinking about our series on Sunday nights and I was thinking, I really hope that I, I have a familiar text lined up. I, I wasn't quite sure which parable was coming up. I have a list on my desk of parables of the Old Testament. And I thought, I'm going to find one that will be pretty easy to develop because I just don't have that much time to put a sermon together. And I looked on my desk and all of them are in the book of Ezekiel. So I didn't get an easy out for that. But our text tonight is Ezekiel chapter 17. It's probably not familiar territory to you, but it will be very instructive as we look at it. Now, because it's not really familiar and because it's connected to events in history, we've got to do a little bit of historical background before we get to this parable, the parable of the two eagles and the vine. Ezekiel is set in the year 592 B.C., which is between the second deportation of the Jews into Babylonian captivity, which occurred in 597, and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 586 B.C. So Ezekiel is in captivity already. He went in along with the king of Judah, Jehoiachin, also known as Jeconiah, and 10,000 others in that, that second deportation in 597. He's been in captivity now for five years, and he's with many other captives in Babylon, thinking about their home and wondering about the events. And this is, as I said before, the destruction of Jerusalem. There's still hope that maybe God will not utterly destroy the people at the hands of the Babylonians. Now, after King Jehoiachin was taken into Babylonian captivity, Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, he planted another king in Jerusalem of the line of David, but not the, not the heir Jehoiachin. He put his own king in there, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was supposed to be a puppet king for Babylon. Uh, if you're open to Ezekiel 17, verse 14 gives the three basic requirements Nebuchadnezzar had for Zedekiah. Simple. Number one, be humble. That is, submit to the king of Babylon. Number two, don't lift yourself up. And number three, keep the covenant you made with Babylon. He wasn't concerned about the covenant with God. He was concerned about the covenant that Zedekiah made with Babylon. In other words, don't make alliances with other nations. Be loyal to Babylon. But Zedekiah broke the covenant with Babylon and he made an alliance with Egypt. And it is during this time that Ezekiel gives this prophecy in the form of a parable. And in the parable he spells doom for Zedekiah and utter destruction for the city of Jerusalem and for the temple therein. Now, before we read the parable, I want you to get in your mind there is a lot of dualism there. In other words, a lot of pairs 
things come in twos. And I think it's more helpful to, to bring this to your attention before the reading than after the reading. First of all, there are two methods of storytelling that you should watch for. The parable is introduced as a riddle and a parable. Now the word riddle comes from a Hebrew word that indicates something obscure and that requires interpretation. So the riddle is going to indicate that within this, this illustration there is a deeper prophetic meaning. Parable, which is what we've been dwelling on Sunday nights for the last several months, a parable is a comparison, an illustration where you lay two things side by side and illustrate. It's easier to understand. It points to a historical meaning. So two methods of storytelling. One, the riddle points to a prophetic meaning. The second, the parable points to a historical meaning. It's a comparison. Also, there are two eagles. Now these eagles represent, represent the greatest kings in power at the time. Not a king of Jerusalem, not a king of Israel, but Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt, named Hophra. So those are two important political rulers that are depicted in this parable. Then you have two plants. Uh, and we'll go back over this. Look for these when you go through the, the parable with me. The topmost twig of the cedar in Lebanon... That's is in Israel, represented Jehoiachin, the king that was taken captive along with Ezekiel and 10,000 others, who remained in Babylonian captivity for the rest of his life and was cared for during that time. The second plant was planted from the seed of the land, the seed of the land of Babylon. And it grew into first a willow twig and then a low spreading vine. And this second plant was uh, Nebuchadnezzar's king that he put in Judah, Zedekiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar sat on the throne, who was supposed to be loyal, but eventually rebelled by going out to the king of Egypt. Finally, you see in this parable two actions of God, an action of punishment and an action of consolation. Now, this is a pretty difficult text, so... Let's walk through it slowly now that um, we've noted these, the dualism. We looked at these pairs, and let's see if we can make any sense out of it from a historical point of view. I'm reading from Ezekiel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. So there's your two methods of storytelling. Say, thus says the, the Lord God. A great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. So there you have Nebuchadnezzar, and he's taking the top of the cedar, that is Jehoiachin, the king of Israel, or, or Judah at that time. He's taking it into captivity, captivity when Ezekiel and 10,000 others were taken in the second deportation. Verse 4. He, that's Nebuchadnezzar, the great eagle, he broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Now, Babylon was known at that time as the city of merchants. So the original hearers would have understood that, that this is Jehoiachin being taken into Babylonian captivity. 
Let's look at the next verse, verse 5. Then he took from the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it, this is that great eagle, he set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned towards him, and its roots remained where it stood. So Nebuchadnezzar planted a new plant. This is Zedekiah, who was supposed to be his king in Jerusalem, who was supposed to stay loyal to him, and at first he did. You see that the, the branches of the low-spreading vine turned toward him, toward the great eagle, the first eagle we see, Nebuchadnezzar. But let's read on. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. Look at verse 7. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots towards him and shot forth its branches towards him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. So the second great eagle is the king of, of Egypt. And you see this, this vine, who is Zedekiah, turning toward the second great eagle, who didn't plant it. So verse 9 says, Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit, so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm, or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? And you recognize these are rhetorical questions to which the answer is yes. This is bad for this plant. It will be easily uprooted because it's the will of the Lord for it to be so. So hopefully you get just a little understanding of this very obscure parable in the book of Ezekiel. And what I want to look at it as, as an opportunity to study how God works. And uh, we're going to see that he works in four ways, and in that we'll see examples of his sovereignty and his grace. So let's start. First of all, we notice that God works through his people. God's desire in the beginning was to show all the nations his love and providence through Israel. It is not the case, as many people think, that Israel was God's special people to be kept to themselves, to enjoy all his blessings by themselves, and to remain his chosen people for all time. God's plan was to save the earth through the people of Israel. The reason why he chose them as his special people was to bless all the nations of the earth. It's not the case that God cared only about the Jews and didn't care anything about the Gentiles during the Old Testament time period. Sometimes we get that idea, but the Jews were supposed to be reaching out and showing the whole world God's glory. And they failed to do that. Let me show you a few passages along that line, starting with the beginning of this nation, Exodus 19, after God delivered them out of Egyptian bondage, and he's about to deliver the law from Mount Sinai through Moses. Here's what he says, Exodus 19, beginning in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So you stop there and you think, yes, yeah, see, they're more important than everybody else. They're his treasured possession. He, he doesn't care anything about the rest of the earth. That's not what it says. For you read on and he says, For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now it's very important not to pass over that phrase, kingdom of priests. What's a priest's job? A priest's job is mediation between the ordinary world and the spiritual world. A go-between, a bridge between the spiritual world, between God and earth. And so what he's saying is not, I don't care about the rest of the world, you're all I care about. What he's saying is, you're going to be my tool to reach the whole earth. That's why he says the whole earth is mine. He cares about the Gentiles. Israel was supposed to help him reach them. There are other passages. Look at Isaiah 49, verse 6. It is too light a thing, he says, that you should be my servant, speaking to Israel, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Israel's calling was to be a light for the nations. You can also look at Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. But instead of trusting in God and allowing Him to reach the nations to, through Him, they trusted in other nations, turned their back on God, and practiced idolatry. And so this is why their doom is being spelled here in Ezekiel 17 and in other prophecies in the Old Testament Scripture. Who are God's people now? We are God's people. The church is God's people. And He still wants to bless the world through His people. That's always been His method. That's His method now. The Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Mark 16, 15. Go and preach the gospel to the whole creation. That's our marching orders. That's the charge that we have been given. Just as Israel was to be a light to the nations, we, the church, are now a kingdom of priests to mediate between spirit, the spiritual world and uh, the physical world, and it's, it's all up to us. God wants to reach the world with the gospel through us. So let this be a cautionary tale. What happened to Israel when they failed? What will happen to us and the rest of the world when we fail? We have a very important mission. Number two, let's notice in the second place that God works through powerful rulers. Throughout history, when God needed to discipline his people, he often turned to pagan rulers, such as Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or if you want to look at the background of the book of Ezra, as many of our young people are studying for Bible Bowl, and we studied last quarter on Wednesday nights in here, Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, he would often turn to these pagan rulers providentially to do his will to perform discipline or deliverance. 
Discipline in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we don't know how God does this, but it's very clear in the Bible that he's sovereign over all the earth. And in the words of Daniel 4, 17, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowly, lowliest of men. Through his mysterious providence, he will use rulers and others to change the course of history. Sometimes the, the events of history pivot on, on very small, seemingly insignificant events. And we have numerous examples in our Bibles, right? Pharaoh happened to dream one night, and a chief cupbearer who happened to be in prison with Joseph, an Israelite, remembered Joseph and brought Joseph to the king who interpreted his dream, and that eventuated the migration of the Israelites to Egypt where they stayed for centuries. Eventually they became so numerous that the Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph made them slaves. And so another seemingly insignificant event, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. At the moment, baby Moses was set into the Nile River in an ark made of bulrushes by his mother. He was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's house. It prepared him to lead Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Ruth happened to go out into the field of Boaz. And that led to her becoming his wife and becoming an ancestor of the Messiah. Ahasuerus, king of Persia, couldn't sleep one night and called for uh, his journal or his chronicles to be read to him. And the servant reading it reminded him of how Mordecai saved his life one time. And that was one of the events that led to the Jews' salvation when they were facing extinction at the hands of, of Haman, that evil villain in the book of Esther. So you see, all these examples are in our Old Testaments of how God could use the smallest events to turn the wheels of history in whatever direction he chose. We don't know how this works. We just know that the Bible says he's sovereign and that that's the way history goes. I like this by Alexander Pope, who sees with equal eye as God of all, a hero perish or a sparrow fall, atoms or systems into ruin hurled, and now a bubble burst and now a world. The death of a hero, the fall of a sparrow, God sees it all. The burst of a bubble, the destruction of a world, God sees each and everything, no matter how small or great it is. He watches over it all and he is in control of it all. And in the days of Ezekiel, he was behind all of it. The captivity of the Jews in Babylon, the fall of the city of Jerusalem by the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and later their restoration to Jerusalem under Cyrus the Great. Remember that God works through powerful rulers. Now in the third place, let's notice that God works through trying circumstances. Now this is a difficult subject. The subject of the discipline of the Lord and how it works and if it's fair and why it has to be this way, it's very difficult for us to grasp and understand. And eventually we have to come to grips with it. Eventually we have to deal with this idea of the discipline of the Lord through trying circumstances. When you're young, if you haven't suffered anything yet, 
I suppose you can avoid it, but eventually all of us face some kind of hardship or difficulty, and we have to ask ourselves, what's behind this, or is anything behind this? And you only have two choices. There are only two conclusions you can draw. Number one, you can decide that there's no meaning in suffering. There is no God who can make suffering meaningful. That hardship is senseless and purposeless and life doesn't matter. That it's all just vanity of vanities, in the words of Solomon. Or on the other hand, you can say there is a God and he can turn my suffering into something meaningful and beneficial. He can bless me in his mysterious ways through suffering. He can make me better. He can draw me closer to him. And while I don't always understand why or how, I know he's in control and I trust him. To my knowledge, that's the only two ways that we can deal with suffering hardship in the world. We can say there is no God and it's meaningless. Or we can say there is a God and he can use it for my betterment. If you know another option, let me know. But that's the only ones that I can come up with. Now in Ezekiel, he's very clear that Judah went into captivity because God was punishing her. And I want you to turn, if you're in Ezekiel 17, look at verses 19 through 21. And note how many times the personal pronoun for God is used. Either I, me, or my all of those are referencing Jehovah. As I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And... All the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. God's words regarding Zedekiah and his disobedience to God, his disloyalty to Nebuchadnezzar, his alliance with Egypt. God says, I'm using this captivity. I'm using this conquest to fulfill my purposes. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And so we see this, this happens. God judges people and God judges the nations. We see him judging his nation. Even his own people are not exempt. God judges the nations. When you survey history, you're confronted with two basic facts. Fact number one is... Every nation in history has not lived up to the righteousness of God. Every nation in history has been sinful. And number two, every nation of history, eventually one right after the other, falls. Every nation is sinful, and every nation eventually meets its downfall. Clarence McCartney wrote this, and I thought these were, were good words. Where are these eagle empires of Babylon in Egypt? Well, we, we know where Egypt is on the map. But is it the Egypt of ancient times? Is Egypt one of the great world powers today like it was? Of course not. Where is Babylon in Egypt now? Would you depict them 
as eagles? If you were choosing some animal to, to demonstrate them, where are these eagle empires of Babylon and Egypt, wheeling and screaming over the carcasses of nations they've conquered and dismembered? Where are the winged lions of Nineveh, the chariots of the Hittites, the navies of Phoenicia, the phalanx of Thebes and the armies of Greece, the legions of Rome, the treasures of Spain. All these nations he's mentioning here were once great empires. What are they now? If they even exist, they're small and, and comparatively insignificant. There's a, a sonnet, a poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley called Ozymandias. And, and I love it because it, it, it has the same theme here, that eventually the great nations, all of them, will, will fall and become insignificant if, if they're even remembered. Ozymandias was some name, I think it's a fictional name of some ruler that Shelley made up. And in the sonnet, he talks about this sculpture, this ruined sculpture that was discovered, standing for some forgotten empire. And here's how it goes. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. So all you really need to take from that to understand this is that this traveler happened upon the ruins of, of a sculpture, broken down, picture these, these two stone legs standing up, and a little ways off from it, what once was the head of that statue, on which you can still see the visage, the face, of some forgotten ruler. Okay, so he continues, and he says, And on the pedestal, these words appear. So there's a caption on the pedestal, Underneath these, these legs that are standing up in the middle of nowhere. And what does the caption say? My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Do you get the point? It's pretty simple to get. That ruined sculpture speaks to the absurdity of world power. That God is sovereign and eventually all nations will fall under his mighty hand. There are two things that are constants in world history. That night all nations have been sinful and one right after another they fall. Where do all the nations go? Is it just a matter of time and decay? Or could we conclude from texts like Ezekiel and passages like we read in Daniel a moment ago, that God eventually brings them all into judgment. Somebody says, well, America is standing strong and has been standing strong for a long time. We're a young country. We've only been around for 250 years, and in terms of world history, that's not very long. And God will bring our downfall just as he has other countries who've been disobedient who've been disobedient. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, any nation. We would do well to heed those words. It is said that Thomas Jefferson, who was himself a slaveholder, cataloged the offenses of slavery 
and ended those words with the following admission, I tremble when I remember that God is just. And tremble he should. We all should tremble when we remember God is just. Because if it's not on this side of heaven, there will be a judgment day where every nation, every king, every billionaire, every leader, every great man and woman will have to stand before God and give an account for how he or she has lived their lives. And only Christ will save us. Only redemption through his blood gives us hope. And so know that God uses trying circumstances to do his work. And he's putting his people through trials in the book of Ezekiel to cleanse them. He's using the conquest of Babylon to refine them and to make them better. And he does the same with us. Now, in the final place, notice that God works through grace. The judgment and the trials, that's not the end of the story. There is actually a happy ending to this parable. God works through grace. He tempers his judgment with mercy. Now again, we see at the end of this chapter, more personal pronouns showing God's action, what he will do, what he vows to do. Verses 22 through 24, notice the personal pronouns and also notice there's, there's an ending to the parable that we didn't get at the beginning of the chapter. Start reading. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will, will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, and I will make high the low tree. I will dry up the green tree, and I will make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. There's a happy ending here. God says, by my grace, not through anything anyone deserves, I will give hope. Now remember what we said at the beginning when we were analyzing the parable and we were talking about the dualism. There are two methods of storytelling here, a riddle and a parable. And we've been outlining the parable pretty thoroughly here. It's pretty plain in the historical context. This is about world powers like Babylon and Egypt and kings like Jehoiachin and Zedekiah and what will happen when Zedekiah rebels and, and it's not good for Zedekiah. That's the parable part. What about the riddle? What about the prophetic meaning, the deeper, more obscure meaning here? What is it pointing to? There are two possible interpretations that I'd like you to consider. And they have to do with this tender twig that we read about here. Look again, where is it? Um, at verse 22. I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. What is this new tender twig 
that he's taking from the cedar in Lebanon, we saw at the beginning of the chapter, and planting it on a high lofty mountain. Two possible interpretations. Number one, the tender twig taken from the top of the cedar and planted in the heights of Israel could be a reference to one of the leaders at the time of the Jews' restoration back to Jerusalem. That time period studied in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And whenever we went through that study in here, and those of you who are studying it for Bible Bowl or, or in your Bible classes, you know, there are many great leaders this could possibly refer to. There's Zerubbabel, who was of the line of David, the royal line. Ezra, Nehemiah, Mordecai, and Esther in Persia. There, there are a lot of great choices for leaders who would come. And owing to that interpretation is the fact that these events are the next historical events that will occur after Ezekiel's time. So that could be the interpretation. It could be. But there's another possible interpretation. And that is that this tender twig that's planted on a high and lofty mountain is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now consider, there's a number of things here. The cutting of the cedar in the first part of the parable was planted in another land, the land of merchants. And uh, it was planted, I'm sorry, it was planted by uh, the waters. And it turned into a vine that went to one eagle and then another eagle, right? Well, this is not cut from that tree or plant or whatever it turned out to be. This is cut from that initial cedar in Lebanon. So that's important because there's a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 22 that says that there will not be another king from the line of Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin is that king that was taken from Jerusalem, set in Babylon, and left there. Not another one of his children will, will reign in Jerusalem. Instead, the Messiah would come from the Davidic line, but not from the children of Jehoiachin. Okay, that's interesting because in the last part of the parable, they go back to the cedar tree, not from the sprig, but from the cedar tree, and cut a new cutting. The cedar tree may represent the messianic line of David. Another interesting thing is that it's called a tender one. That's an interesting detail. Why call the sprig tender? Uh, the other sprigs are not referred to with that kind of language at the beginning of the parable. It lines up pretty well with a number of other passages, prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah, like Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, that refer to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as a shoot or a branch from the stump of Jesse. You, you've heard these Messianic prophecies before. This sounds a little bit like that. So it could be a reference to those things. Also, the Messianic kingdom became great and fruitful. And all nations were pulled into it. You'll see at the end of this parable that um, all the, in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Under it will dwell every kind of bird. All nations came into the Messianic kingdom. That could very well be the meaning here. It could be both. That's the way these things work. There's a riddle and there's a parable. And the parable is about all the historical events that are 
falling into place under the sovereignty of God. But the riddle has to do with God's grace. His gracious plan to save a disobedient people. Although they didn't deserve it, he would show mercy on them. And eventually, the Messiah would come, Jesus Christ, die for the sins of mankind. And that, friends, is our hope. Even in this obscure, hard-to-reach part of the Bible in Ezekiel chapter 17, you're reading about Jesus. You're seeing the mercy and the grace of God. Every story in the Old Testament and the New Testament ends this way. It doesn't end with darkness and despair. It ends with hope because God wants us to be saved. He doesn't want us to be lost, but we have to respond to that kindness and mercy. We can't continue to turn our back toward Him and refuse His gracious offer because there is a judgment day coming. Judgment finally came to the Jews. It, initially, he, took, he allowed Babylon to take a few captives. And then in Ezekiel's day, Ezekiel and Jehoiachin and other dignitaries, 10,000 were taken from the land. Still, God graciously waited and pled and offered opportunities of repentance. Zedekiah rebelled and eventually the city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Seventy years passed, though, and he uses another ruler, Cyrus, king of Persia, to restore the Jews to their homeland. Why? Because God is patient. He's merciful. He's gracious. But he will judge. You've been given time, but you don't know how much more time you will have. Are you ready to meet your God? Are you ready to meet the one who is sovereign over all the earth, we're going to sing an invitation song. And if there's something you need to do to prepare, something you need to do to get ready, don't put it off. Do it tonight. We want you to come. We want to help you. We want you to be right with God. If there's anything that we can do, please let us do it for you tonight as we stand together and as we sing.